Pius and Elaborate Treatise Concerning Prayer and the Answer of Prayer by John Brown of Wamfrey, work chapter 9. This chapter is on the causes to averseness to prayer. Remember, of course, Brown uh, at the beginning of the book presents us with uh, John 14, 13 and 14, Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. <coughs> so, <coughs> Brown, Brown um, in this chapter wants to talk about why it is, and this really considering all that we've covered. We understand it's a duty, we understand their benefits, but we should. We understand it's a particular, peculiar duty to believers. Why is it that there still remains in people this uh, hesitance or reluctance to pray? What causes this in people. And so, we're going to see as we go, <coughs> he's not so much concerned, and we'll, we'll see this in one of the early points here, he's not so much concerned about uh, discussing unbelievers. That's not the mystery, that's not uh, something that he's concerned to remedy. <clears throat> but those who profess to be believers, those who are in fact believers, still very often struggle with this duty of prayer. So he wants to address that and, and try to uh, provide what he understands to be some remedies. Things to um, that it will make it easier. So um, we're going to look at a number of things. First of all, we're going to look at uh, the for this averseness. And he's going to then... Uh, as we finish up this chapter, he's going to list a number of evils. Uh, and his, his reason for bringing these evils forward that he thinks bring of this averseness to the duty of prayer is he wants to give you a proper understanding of, of, of what ought to motivate you. Why you should be motivated to prayer. <clears throat> so, um, we're going to be looking at the general, and then the, the general, these general causes, and then these specific evils that he sees. And um, the, the general causes are really more of a diagnosis. The specific evils are being set 
forth as a spur or a series of spurs to spur you on, <clears throat> you know, to encourage you uh, to this duty of prayer. Because ultimately, uh, one thing that we should understand as believers. The best way to go about a duty is to go about it not with this feeling of constraint, but going about it willingly. You know, actually wanting to do it, desiring to do it. Um, not, not only because we perceive benefit to ourselves, but uh, ultimately because we have, uh, we have as um, our our goal giving glory to God. Right? The augmentation of the declarative glory of God. That should be uh, really the thing to which we aspire is to glorify God in our bodies and in our spirit. Right? That we should seek to glorify God in the totality of our being. And this duty of prayer is in fact a duty that contributes to this declarative glory, to the expansion of this declarative glory. Uh, it has, as do so many things, for those who are in covenant with God, it has a number of blessings that accrue to believers um, who are diligent in this duty. Uh, and we see in that we, we really should perceive in, in all of this that God's way of dealing with his people is not the same as he's dealing with the heathen. The heathen are, are really under the continual threat of the rod, <clears throat> the curse. And um, eternal condemnation. But believers are being led forth in a different way. And they're being led forth in a way of promise. It's, you know, it's the carrot rather than the stick. Uh, it's not to say that believers don't receive chastisements in this life. But even those chastisements are received uh, or should be received with an attitude and understanding that ultimately there is greater benefit or blessing that is going to follow, that's somehow enfolded in that. Right? That the end of all of this is God intends to bless his people uh, ultimately by bringing us to glory. <clears throat> and so... <coughs> When we look at these evils, these things that I, I think of here as as spurs, and he's not necessarily going to call them that, but uh, these these the things which should uh, kind of prod us or goad us on, we we should look at them and see them as being so many uh, so many things set. 
in our in our paths or in our lives not to discourage us, but as Brown is really going to point out, to encourage us to pray. And in fact, um, I think as we get through this, uh, one thing that you should keep in mind, and one thing that that is alluded to from time to time, is this idea that much of what happens in our lives <coughs> is actually uh, to that end, to encourage us to uh, seek communion with God. So, uh, let's begin with question 185. What are the two things then that Brown seeks to address in this chapter? <coughs> <coughs> So the first thing, A, uh, Brown wants to inquire into the causes of the unwillingness or aversion of heart to perform the duty of prayer. That's what I said. He wants to address in generalities, but he's going to address that first. And then second, or B, he wants to uh, mention some motives that would serve to animate and encourage set the people of God on that cheerful and ready course to pray. And that's really where these <clears throat> evils will come in. So, um, the first thing that he notes about those averse to the duty of prayer, 186. Is he says, you know, with regard to <clears throat> to those who are <coughs> strangers to God. He says, um, there's not really much need to inquire into the causes of their unwillingness, right? Because, uh, for example, he quotes from Job 21, 14 and 15. They say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit should we have if we pray unto him? So, Brown uh, Brown sees this as just, I think, par for the course if you're an unbeliever. And of course you're going to be averse. Of course you're going to be unwilling to pray. That isn't really uh, a question or shouldn't be a question, shouldn't be something that we're, you know, we're trying to figure out. It's, <clears throat> frankly, the natural state of the fallen man, right? Natural man is enmity, <clears throat> is in a state of war with God. So, of course, uh, they're, they're not going to want to pray to God. Uh, they're not interested in God. They're hostile to God. And, and that hostility, uh, he points out, is that they're set against God and 
his people. Now, 187, what seems strange about this when speaking of God's own children is he says, seeing that um, they not only have been partakers, made partakers of the divine nature, but have received of the Spirit of Christ, whereby they cry, Abba, Father. He says, uh, th this actually is uh, strange, that they should need spurs to this duty. After all, he says they've received uh, a spirit of prayer. Right? When they received the new nature, they should have received a spirit of prayer. They want to cry out, Abba, Father. So in order to answer this, he wants to take notice of what he calls three general causes uh, that this occurs in believers. So we're, you know, this is the case and we're looking at the case of believers in this chapter in particular. Right? We're really concerned with the averseness to prayer in believers. <clears throat> There's no mystery and Frankly, there's no remedy for unbelievers apart from them coming to faith in Christ. Like there's not going to be uh, a, a clearing of this for them. So let's begin to look at these three general uh, causes. 188, the first general cause that may lead to this. <coughs> and he says the first general cause is um, it may be he says there's a supreme overruling hand of God. And God may for holy and wise ends Withdraw or withhold his spirit whenever he pleases. He's, after all, in Psalm 51.12, he's called a free spirit. So he's, he's saying God sometimes with, withholds, withdraws influences of grace. And, um, and that uh, certainly could be a general, general and he, he, he does also point out that this general withholding uh, might be because he's been provoked to this by their sinful miscarriages so for example when David falls into sin Or it may simply be a manifestation of his sovereignty and the freedom of his grace uh, 
whereby he's going to instruct everyone to know that it is a matter of grace, free grace, and uh, that everyone should be humbled by that. <clears throat> so that, that, he says, is the first general cause. It's the overruling hand of God, the sovereign hand of God. The second general cause, 189, the second general cause he points out is the hand of Satan. We have to remember Satan is a restless, malicious enemy who is going about daily seeking whom he may devour. There is a continual pressing of of this um, wicked work against the people of God. And so as much as uh, he can do, uh, he points out, you know, Satan is going to Try to raise every kind of opposition to praying that he can. So he's going to fill your mind with clouds and darkness. He's going to make um, he's going to he's going to make a number of things happen around you, uh, perhaps, or uh, introduce thoughts that will make you prejudiced against praying. And he's going to blow the coal of your uh, your own corruptions, right? To discourage you from the duty of prayer. Is it any coincidence where sometimes when when someone actually starts seriously praying, things get a lot harder for them? Like like the sins that they struggle with, they're, they're praying against become inflamed because they're actually trying to <coughs> stamp them out. Yeah, you. I would think that. You need to be. You, you almost need to double down, don't you? Because yeah. like, if there's some specific sin that you're actually praying against, that sin you should expect it to get a lot worse because you're literally you, you, you're literally probably, riling up. There. I, I would I would say not only that sin, but sin in general in your life. You're you're sort of calling. Um, you're calling it out. You're, you're calling it out, and, and you're, you're declaring war against it. So you you should expect. Well, and, it to and, and fight right, that. and Satan is going to engage in that war. Right, Satan mm-hmm. is not. Um, He's not standing down. He's not taking a back seat in all of this. He's actively trying to trip you up, which is the point. Again, remember, we're talking about believers here, right? He's uh, so we, we understand he's he's limited as to what he can do with those who have uh, genuine faith. Nonetheless, he's willing to work with what he can. You know, he's seems quite happy uh, to you know make saints saints stumble and, and fall and uh, a great way to open the door uh, wider for temptation is to <clears throat> get them to go forego praying get them to forego you know little acts of obedience right 
Um, it, it's as Solomon says in the song, uh, it's the little foxes that spoil the vines. Right, the little little things. You 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 start to to um, to fudge little matters. You're going to uh, you're you're going to let yourself slide a little bit here and a little bit there. Not a big deal. Pretty soon, these not a big deal things all conspire to uh, large falls into sin. Right? So Satan is very interested in in keeping you. Uh, if if you can't own you, the next best thing is to make you ineffective, in, ineffectual as a believer. Remember in. Uh, in this time of apostasy in which we live, uh, the Church of Believers is divided into two classes. Those who are public witnesses for the truth and those 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, but nobody knows who they are. You know, And, and the 7,000 that haven't bowed, bowed the knee to Baal, <coughs> while they're known to God, <coughs> and... While I'm not inclined to speak evil of them, um, from the point of view of Elijah, they are useless. Right? Other than knowing that they are there somewhere. But as far as prosecuting the cause of God and His truth in the present generation, they are useless. So, you know, for those... uh, who think that they're reforming within somewhere, uh, you are certainly one of the 7,000 if you are a believer, but um, you're useless to the cause of God in this generation. Anyway, uh, let's move on to the third general cause that may lead uh, to this, this uh, averseness, 190. And this we we um, hinted at, <coughs> and that's the remnant of corruption <coughs> that is yet in the best of of the saints. Right? And he says it's it's like tinder when it comes to Satan blowing on sparks. Boy, oh boy, uh, he is just a master at getting a uh, you know a little tinder. Blown up into a big fire all over again. It's not unusual at all for people who are brought to faith um, to experience from time to time great crises of faith because of this. You're you're not wrestling against flesh and blood. There are unforeseen, un- unseen, and unforeseen <coughs> enemies, adversaries. Uh, there is a spirit world which is in opposition to everything that you've been called to do and to be if you are uh, called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And there's, there is a, a, an opposition um, that is immediately put to work 
So these these uh, remnants or this remnant of corruption, uh, this is all actually uh, from where we sit. It's a double-edged sword against us, right? Because on the one hand, that that remaining corruption is um, is a continual provocation uh, to provoke God to you know remove grace, to remove the influences of grace, and it's also that continual tinderbox for Satan to be playing at and trying to reignite. And that's that's the problem that we have. So those are, those are the general uh, causes. But in order to clear this last point, um, Brown wants uh, he, he wants to name some of the evils specifically that bring about this averseness to the duty of prayer. It's 191. And while he's he's not going to get you know he's not getting into um, uh, specific encouragements to set us about the duty necessarily in this chapter that's that's really the next chapter I think there is as I mentioned at the beginning I think there's a reason <clears throat> as we consider these evils to consider them as in fact a number of of reasons that should spur us on to the duty right? when we uh, meditate upon these things because he's going to mention a number of things that if you're honest if you are at all self-reflective if you are at all um, inclined to uh, not only to be honest with yourself but to make an honest assessment of of your situation before God, uh, these evils that he's going to mention are in fact uh, a number of them. Anyway, uh, these are things that you're probably going to say sound um, sound familiar. Right? The, if you if you stop and think a little bit, uh, maybe even on the ones that don't sound quite as familiar, uh, upon reflection, I think you might find that they are uh, reasonably <clears throat> good um, portrayals of of what is the human the common human condition. Right. So when we when we talk about this averseness to prayer, and again, keeping in mind that we've narrowed the scope to talking about it in those who are believers, professing believers, and assuming that the Spirit of God is working in you, 
<clears throat> yet, <clears throat> as Brown has pointed out, you still have this remnant of indwelling sin. You've not reached the state of sinless perfection. You haven't moved on to that. We haven't entered into a state of glory. And that means you're going to be, uh, from time to time, you're going to be opened up to these evils. Right? Um, and and that's, that's an important thing to recognize. Because each one of these then should be a spur to encourage you to pray. When you think about uh, the seriousness of it and, and the danger, <coughs> you know, there's that saying you've, I'm sure you've heard that there are no atheists in foxholes. Right? When the bombs are falling, when the shots are being fired, almost everybody starts to pray. Right? That's just the natural response. You know, and they're all, almost all of them, if they're not true believers in particular, uh, they're trying to bargain with God. Okay, so when you hear these things, I'm not saying we should be trying to bargain with God, <clears throat> but it is a call to recognize you're in a foxhole in the midst of a spiritual war, and there's all this, uh, all this fighting going on around you, and there's someone out there, <clears throat> or some ones out there, uh, constantly seeking to throw uh, some kind of accelerant on the fire that's burning in you. Your job is, uh, job, job number one uh, with respect to yourself is to mortify the sin that's in you. Right? But Satan and, and the demons, they're out there trying to uh, get that flame burning again and get it really hot. Um, and, and so there's this continual fighting. Right? So just keep this in mind as we go through these things. So there are uh, 13 evils that he's going to list. I don't know if he stopped at 13 uh, because it's one of those uh, numbers that is associated in the Bible with bad outcomes. But <coughs> Anyway, he's found 13 things. All right, 192 then. What's the first evil that brings an averseness to the duty of prayer? So he says this, when, when some lust or other has got advantage, when it's not been carefully withstood and resisted, he says, then the heart is made more unfit for any Christian work. So you have this corruption in you. You're supposed to be mortifying it. But let's say you don't. You, you are feeding it. You're giving it advantage. 
know, if you want to know, again, why the Puritans were so uh, circumspect about what they put before their eyes and their ears and why they were so careful uh, in the way they conducted their lives. They knew that the power of sin is great and they didn't want to give any lust an advantage. Because when the power of the heart, he says, is under uh, any lust, it's carried away with lust, then you are in a captivity. And you're not going to do your duty to God as you ought. <clears throat> and he points out, when David was under the power of that corruption and carried headlong with the swing of it, he wasn't his own man. So consequently, you know, are you going to pray? Maybe. Are you going to pray with pleasure and delight? Probably not. So you don't want to have lust. Uh having an advantage. And the second evil that brings averseness, 193, <clears throat> he says, it, this is, I think, related to the previous one, he says, after committing of some sin or giving way to some corruption, uh, the conscience is very often awakened <clears throat> and the guilt of sin is presented and that that makes the man uh, fearful afraid to draw near to God so in, in essence um, he's saying look when you sin when you are not careful about uh, your behavior, what you're doing is you're setting up yourself for a crisis of conscience. And Satan is going to use that. He's going to come to you and, and he's going to accuse you and say, God, God doesn't want to hear you. God isn't going to hear your prayer. Um, what's the point? So you're going to be battling a guilty conscience. And, and the, he points out the, the, um, the hard part here is <clears throat> it's actually the duty of the Christian by faith to seek forgiveness, right? To wash away that iniquity, but that guilt of conscience can be paralytic.
he says that that you know is very often only um, broken by God opening a door of grace again. It's very hard to get around that. And so these first two, um, he's he's telling you on the one hand, you know, why you should be mortifying the lusts of the flesh, and, and second, you know, the, the danger of 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 um, committing sin. You know, when you know, uh, doing that which you know to be wrong. You're putting yourself in a very bad place. All right, the third evil that brings in reverse is the duty of prayer, 184. I mean, this one is, um, I think, an, an interesting, uh, an interesting one, and one that um, I would say is sort of a temptation at the other extreme. Now he's going to talk about some other extremes. You know, the, when we're talking about extremes in the life of the believer. And this is exactly, I think, uh, why the Bible says, you know, things like don't be righteous over much. <coughs> and, and the reason is this third evil. He says, a deep apprehension of our own unworthiness or vileness um, the inward abominableness of the heart if you are become in the course of meditating on that if you become forgetful not minding uh, the free grace found in, in uh, Christ that you're going to have a fear of this duty. And he, he quotes um, shall, shall or dare such a vile wretch as I that I am presumed to open my mouth to God. That's sort of the way they're thinking. And he, he, he says that um, it's sort of like that the, the person who sees so much wickedness in his own heart that he questions is, is brought up in Habakkuk 1.13 if he can draw near to him who is of pure eyes then he can behold evil. Or Peter, uh, Peter in Luke five eight saying, "Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord." That that kind of idea, <clears throat> where you uh, gain this very deep apprehension of your own unworthiness, and the danger the danger again is despair. An extreme. Well, it's it's despair, but the the extremity of it is you're meditating on that without mm. at the same time keeping in mind that there is grace through Christ. Right? That there is a remedy. It's yes, like you're unworthy, to, it's but there's like a remedy. It's almost like trying to be too pious. Like 
too much piety. Like, yeah, they're they're well. That's that's why I say this is almost an opposite extreme of of what he was just talking about in the first two. <coughs> These are people who were <coughs> are are inclined to. Um, I I think the term. One of the terms that um, I've read Puritans use for this sort of thinking is uh, uh, morbid introspection. You know, where where there's, you know, look, let's be clear, you can't really damn yourself enough before God. But if you don't, if you don't perceive there's a covenant of grace... Hmm. Damning yourself without faith is what's wrong. Right, it, it, that's, yeah, that that's... Um, that's an act. Ultimately, it's actually an act of unbelief. Right? But it may not seem that way, right? If you're, if you're in that position, <coughs> you may perceive yourself to be extremely humble, or others might perceive you to be extremely humble. You know, there's, there's a problem. And, and uh, I'll tell you one way uh, I think you can perceive this problem in yourself and, and avoid this evil. You need to ask yourself when you read the Bible um, does God appear to you to be a God more inclined to wrath or more inclined to mercy? You know, I mean, you can read the Bible. And see the wrath of God everywhere. And you shouldn't miss that. That's a different problem. But it is a problem that some people have. That they can they, they very easily perceive, you know, this the holiness of God and their own which which is really getting us to our next point, but they they, they perceive their own own unworthiness. We're worms of the dust and and all of that. True. We are before God. That should not be allowed to um, to overmaster the covenant of grace. It's kind of like like the people, like the, all these heretics who who take one verse and, and exalt it above another, and they don't weigh the two. Correct? <coughs> yeah, it's always this way. Every error, <coughs> and especially every heresy, right, is uh, it, it, it almost always involves exalting one truth in the Bible uh, to the exclusion of another truth. I, I think I've talked about this before, but um, when we go back to those early heresies, you know, you had one side who wanted to exalt Christ's divinity uh, over his humanity right, to the point where they, you know, suppressed his humanity. That's one kind of heresy. And others who were exalting his humanity and, and disparaging his divinity. That's another kind of heresy. Is he a true man? Yes. Is he true God? Yes. You know, they, they both have a point, right? But when you stick to one 
point in this question, uh, you're and you miss the other, you're a heretic. And, and that's, I'm not going to say in, in this case uh, there's heresy here, but it's a great evil. All right, it's not quite the same thing. This is more of a practical evil that people fall into. When you see judgment everywhere but not mercy in Christ. Cause yeah, when you, and that's exactly it because you perceive everything um, in terms of your own unworthiness. By the way, that's actually supremely selfish. Right? It, it really is. Because you are making your own unworthiness the standard for interpreting the Bible and the mercy of God. All right, let's move on to the fourth evil that brings in a verse in the duty of prayer, 195. <clears throat> the fourth is, and I, I started to kind of allude to this, uh, deep apprehensions of the greatness, holiness, purity, justice, and glory of God have the same effect. Right? Especially uh, when they're accompanied with what we just talked about in point three, evil three. So boy, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, right? You... Um, you know that God is a great and wonderful God, and and you have uh, your heart is just dancing for joy at this idea, and you've joined to it, you know that apprehension. It's a double whammy. You know, it's it's like getting hit with with a double uh, double barrel, you know, evil. You know, again, the, the issue here is, <coughs> particularly with people who lose sight of the covenant of grace, because those two things, you know, the more you're focused on those two things, the, the bigger that gap is going to get between where you are and where God is. You know, who you are and who God is. And that's going to make you... I, I would actually say not just averse to prayer. You, you know, go back to what you just mentioned, that, that I, you're going to become despairing of prayer. You're just going to despair. I don't see how you can do anything else other than despair in that situation. You're, I mean, in the one case, you're digging a hole and you're putting yourself in it deeper and deeper and deeper. In the other case, you've got this pedestal that you're jacking up higher and higher and higher and higher. Because you're sinking lower and lower and lower. <clears throat> and, yeah, when they're combined, as I say, it's, it's a double blast from the shotgun of evil. But, that's not to say, again, in either case, that the one or the other is not true. Which, which is why, you know, I say this is, in a sense, at the other end of the spectrum. Because these kinds of things now, these these two evils, are things which, at least on the surface, they don't. It's not like I'm I'm uh, giving advantage to a lust, at least not initially, as I think about it. Um, 
I'm, I'm damning myself, right? Um, I'm not uh, capitulating to some kind of sin, at least not, I think, as people generally uh, tend to think of sin or conceive of sin. You know, what could be so bad about um, having great and high thoughts of God or, or having low and disparaging thoughts of myself? The answer is um, a lot if you don't have uh, in, in this <clears throat> process of meditation, you don't have a firm grasp of the covenant of grace. You can, you can get carried away in one direction or the other or both. <coughs> and the, the net result is it's going to discourage you from praying. Alright, 196. The fifth evil that brings an averseness to the duty of prayer. Um, he says that when when people on one occasion or other give way to the neglect of the duty their praying frame wears off uh, and, and what, he, what he's talking about is is this. The more you neglect praying, <clears throat> the longer you neglect praying, the more unfit you become. Yeah, you become unfit. And, and he, he says, again, there, there are a couple of things that are going to happen here probably, right? You're provoking the Lord to withdraw his influences, and you're also opening up the door. Satan's going to take off the opportunity uh, to get in there. And interestingly enough, he, he brings up <coughs> he brings up the case of. Jesus, uh, that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he is continually going to the disciples and asking them to, you know, to, to watch and pray. And each time they, uh, they neglect this duty, they become more unfit, and they become more unfit, and they become finally most unfit. And then they desert Christ. And, yeah, and then that's really what happens. Until right? God graciously opens a door and restores yeah. them, correct? Yeah. But that, that doesn't excuse their <clears throat> duty. That's the mercy of God and His providence. Right. And, and, but and, they but neglect the, the point, duty. yeah, his point here is that there's, you know, there, there is this sort of, um, uh, there's a downward uh, direction when you're neglecting prayer. Alright, 
the sixth evil that brings an averseness to do prayer, 197. It says, when, when people don't take care to watch over their heart in prayer, when uh, they're not careful to guard against carnality and formality, right, that there's... <coughs> There's a seriousness that, that he says wears away. And formality is praying just sort of by rote. Carnality is uh, praying without a proper framing of the heart toward God. And both of them are... The, the, the carnality, would, would that be like praying for something but not really thinking that you need it? Just praying because, you know, our Father, our Lord, and Heaven, would be the name? Or, or it would be that there's, there isn't any lifting up of the soul in prayer. Yes. Yeah, there, there's, you know, there is that rote aspect to it. Um, and he, he's saying that when this, you know, uh, when this sets in, it's usually not far that neglect of the duty is going to follow. Um... And he, he's, he's saying, when, when you begin to think that way, when you begin to approach it that way, it's, it's really, you're doing it um, in a sense to be fashionable. And it, it is not, um, ultimately you're not viewing it as something necessary. It, it, so it becomes, you know, it moves from that to being optional. And it just falls into disuse. Yeah. So, what was the Pharisees' type of praying then? Was it both? Formality. Obviously, it was formality, right? There's a lot of formality going on. All right, the seventh evil that brings verses to the prayer 198. Seventh evil, he says, is in fact uh, carnality and worldly mindedness, which is uh, an enemy to all religious duties. It's a great enemy to prayer and a praying frame. So when you are, uh, your heart is overcharged with, with, um, you know, feasting and drunkenness and cares of this life, you can't watch and pray. When you are uh, in that frame, he says, you're, you're entirely indisposed to the kind of watchfulness that prayer is meant to be. So this is, I mean, there, we've read books before where 
there's accounts of people who were able to pray for hours and hours and hours. Um, so it's sort of the, the, the ability to, to be able to focus on the prayer that you're offering up and not continually drifting off to, you know, this thing or that thing, what I read in the news, what I heard the neighbor say. What I, and your particular yeah. need for it. Like, you see you need it. Okay, so, yeah, you... you um, and, and this is this is really a, a problem. I don't know. Um, I don't know how how uh, pervasive the problem was in in Brown's day, but there's probably something akin to to this. And that is, we live in a time and. A place where we are constantly being inundated with, you know, information, <clears throat> and that information information is uh, certainly able to clutter our our thinking, and you and you, you find yourself just when. Um, you hear about something again and again and again. Uh, you you find that just with news, for example, sometimes it's hard to put something out of your mind because it's it's just repeated so often. Well, what what is what's in view here is um, if we didn't have the news, let's say. <coughs> And for people who don't pay attention to the news, uh, they have other things that they put in that, right? Sports. Or, you know, maybe it is your work. Right? Maybe it is eating and drinking, partying, having a good time, whatever. Uh, that all these things are so many things that are, are binding you to this world and making you... Uh, ill-prepared and unprepared to that spiritual mindedness which is necessary for genuine communion with God. You know, I mean, when, when you pray, when you pray by yourself, and you should, you, you should begin uh, really by, by trying to clear your mind of everything. Which is why it's usually good to do it first thing in the morning before you start the day. It's as he said, he wants you know it should be the first thing you do, and it should be the last thing you do. And you know, frankly, um, the more you try to do, the more you ought to be praying throughout the day. Like didn't David say he prayed like seven times a day? Or yeah, something there's like there's reason. To pray, but you know, when we were talking about family prayer before, uh, when he's, he's talking about morning and evening, but he's he's talking. I mean, we're talking about um, well, and he quotes it actually in this point: uh, "Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God." Uh, Philippians four six. Right? We're we're to make known. Our, our 
our requests to God in everything, or in our thanksgiving to God in everything. So there are a, a number of different ways that we're going to pray. We're going to pray, um, you know, we're going to pray in very focused ways. Uh, we should throughout the day. But there are going to be other times we're going to pray short, uh, what, and we'll, we'll talk about this later, I believe, in the book, uh, ejaculatory prayers, where we're just, it's, it's a short prayer. So like uh, in the morning you pray for the grace for the, throughout the day, and then during the day you pray for the there, continued grace. There are things that, night, that come up. You pray for the forgiveness for the things that you messed up. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, you're, you're actually, uh, in some respects, you're probably better equipped at the end of the day to give thanks. Mm. <clears throat> right? At the beginning of the day, it's sort of like, um, <clears throat> I, I think it was uh, Brown of Haddington who um, noted that um, it's a bigger sin to neglect praying after the meal than to pray before the meal because before the meal you're asking God to bless it to you afterward you're returning thanks to him for the meal and he, he said that you know, you're, you're withholding the, the returning of the blessing to God uh, which is actually a bigger uh, and more egregious sin in, in all of this that's the, that's the reason why God blesses, right? So we can return thanks. So anyway, we, we have to watch out. Carnality and worldly-mindedness. And again, uh, this is exactly why the, the um, uh, Puritans were so careful and were so eagerly circumspect about... Um, you know, what was... What, what they permitted, what they tolerated in their society. All right, eight. The eighth evil, it brings averseness to the duty of prayer, is um, <coughs> excessive grief and sorrow. He <coughs> says that excessive grief and sorrow... Uh, it very often unhinges, discomposes, and disframes the soul so that you can't mind the duty of prayer. And he says, you know, very often um, excessive sorrow makes you sleepy. Again, that's not a good frame for praying. Mm. So these are these are all important uh, things to keep in mind. And you know, given given the world in which we live, not only do we worry about this carnality and worldly mindedness, but there are plenty of things happening which could bring us to grief and sorrow. <coughs> and we have to be careful that we're not. Uh, grieving or sorrowing over much. It's disconcerting and discombobulating. Right, ninth, the ninth evil that brings averseness to the duty of prayer 
number 200, is by not watching the prayer. That is, by not taking hold of all of the opportunities uh, for prayer and the free and gracious motions of the Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is, you should be very much open to uh, the motions of the Spirit. You know, if, if God moves you to pray, you should pray. If you, he's saying if, if you reject that, if you push that aside, what you're doing is you are um, provoking the Spirit to withdraw. And if he withdraws, there's going to be a deadness that's going to follow. <clears throat> so, you know, it, it may seem, uh, and, and I'll tell you, a lot of times people don't pray in situations because uh, I, I suspect they, they would be embarrassed, they would feel embarrassed, or they... Like praying in public for their food or something. Uh, it, it could be that, but it, it could be something else. You know, I, I mean, I, I know that uh, in, in going about doing things in my trade, uh, there were times when I had things that I needed to do, and I stopped and, and just, I would pray before I did it. Once in a while, people would ask me, "What are, you know, like what are you doing?" Because I would just stop and, and put my head down, and I said, I, "I'm praying because I don't know what I'm doing." I'm about to do something I know not what, and I need wisdom. You know, I need to understand it. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I, I would tell you, um, every time I did, the result was actually quite good. Um, anyway. But, you know, not just those situations. He's really saying, uh, you know, he, he, and he, here he points to uh, pray without ceasing and everything give thanks quench out the spirit you know, we have to be in a praying frame always so whenever the spirit is moving you to pray um, pray you know, it's not saying that if you're driving a car you should close your eyes and run off the road but you know um, you can pray you can still pray Right, the tenth evil that brings in verse is the duty of prayer, 201. And he says, this is an evil that flows from pe uh, pride or pettiness. But he says, when a person has been praying for some considerable time for a special mercy or for something that uh, he wants and he gets no return... For satisfaction, then um, he says very often uh, this starts to boil up in the heart, and and the moment that becomes <clears throat> discernible in the person, <clears throat> the one who's going to discern it is probably he says going to be Satan, who's then going to be suggesting to you um, it's a vain exercise to pray. Right? Why? Why bother?
and that uh, that's a, you know that is a, a big problem. Frankly, if you've been praying for a long time for something and you don't get it, um, you need to ask yourself if you're praying according to the will of God. If you are, then you should keep praying. Right? But maybe you're not. And maybe that's what you should be trying to discover. Rather than allowing yourself to fall into this uh, trap of being tempted to think that praying is, you know, of no use. It will, it will come to nothing. Right? God will never answer, you know, my prayer. As long as it's going to the will, it needs to be prayed all the time. Like, yeah. like for, for parents who have unconverted children, that they <coughs> always be praying for their children to be converted, <coughs> even if it takes a long time, correct? That's yeah. something that's good to keep praying for, but maybe the job you want, you know, your dream job, you keep praying for it, it doesn't come. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's not. Other, other, some of these things, other doors open. Right, other things happen while you're praying in one particular direction, and then all of a sudden things, you know, start to unfold in a way that you uh, could not have fathomed. The problem is if you're so focused on what you believe is going to be the answer, and it's not something, um, it's not something specific. You know, it's one thing if you're praying for something uh, a, a, that God has promised specifically. Right, and and that uh, you should be persistent in that. But if you're praying for something and you're not uh, you're not sure it's the Lord's will, you should you should begin to inquire whether it is God's will, a, and b. If you have reason to believe it is God's will, <coughs> then you need to uh, maybe inquire whether it's God's timing uh, or or whether or not, although it may be within the will of God, maybe there are other options, right? Um, I think, again, sometimes, uh, you know, and, and this is, this is sort of really, I think what he's talking about here is um, we want X. We, we want that, that thing, Right? <clears throat> and that's the only thing we want now. You know, it's like like a kid who wants some toy. And, you know, you could give that child every other toy in the store, and they don't care, they're not going to pay attention, they're going to throw fits, uh, because he didn't get that toy, right, the one toy. And that's what he's saying, there's pride, there's a pettiness about uh, about people in this. And sometimes God doesn't answer your prayers, and it's a blessing. You know, and you'll find out in time why, and you'll find out that there is a blessing to that. Right. So to conclude, then I shouldn't pray. Why bother? That's the wrong conclusion. You shouldn't fall to that conclusion. Right, we have a couple more. Uh, the eleventh evil that brings reverseness to your prayer to it too. <clears throat> he says, um, "There's an erroneous opinion that people have, and I'm not sure. 
I, I, this is something that I, I when when he, he when I tell you what it is, if you've read the um, the Puritans much, uh, you can see that they place. Uh, uh, I think a, a fair bit of weight on this, but let me, let me tell you what Brown says, and then I want to make a point. He says this, that we're not obliged to pray unless we're sensible of the Spirit moving us to pray. Right? And, and the Puritans do talk about this a lot, you know, that you should seek a spirit of prayer, that you should... Um, this is a very desirable thing to be sensible of the motions of the Spirit of God in prayer. <clears throat> but what Brown is saying is <clears throat> that is not the limitation. right? As desirable as it may be, um, this is one of these things where you know, you should pray regardless of whether or not you feel like it. And in fact, he, he says that um, uh, you know, neglect of prayer leads to that feeling or lack of feeling like praying. And I don't feel like praying. Uh, whereas, on the other hand, you know, you do pray uh, that in, you know, in time, in, in, um, in most cases, in time, uh, you actually probably will begin to. You know, have that, but that just because you don't feel like praying, that's not a good reason not to pray, right? And you shouldn't use. He's saying, don't use that as an excuse. All right, the twelfth evil uh, that brings a verse in the study of prayer to a three is when there's a spirit of laziness. You know, you don't. Give yourself over to stirring up yourself to call on the Lord. And so he says daily, become more and more unfit for the duty. He says it's spiritual sloth. Brown is, is saying, you know, you can protest all day long, I'm not a lazy person. Brown is saying, yes, you are. If you don't pray, you're lazy. He's not really talking about the uh, like just like the quick prayers throughout the day, but but that specific setting apart time each day He's to pray. He's talking about setting apart time. He's talking about... Um, well, you know, there's a lot that uh, he thinks should go into prayer, which he's, you know, he's going to get into um, a little bit later in the book. But 
Um, he wants he wants you to be uh, actively engaged, right? Not drawing back, but he knows you have to get yourself kind of worked up to it. And it really is point on this one is you do this for other things. You know, you get yourself roused up. You get yourself together. Do other things that you want to do or need to do. He's saying, you know, same thing here. So you, you think he's, um, it's not just the laziness where it's, oh, I don't feel like specifically praying right now. Of course, that's tied up in it. But even like the, I'm going to take five minutes before I pray and clear my mind, put my phone away, put my things away, that that kind of thing. Just the yeah, whole... he's, he, he's, he's really, he's indicting the whole, I, I, I would say the whole um, uh, series of, of activities that you're going to have to engage to do to pray right. You have to deliberately set apart time, you know, put things out of mind, focus. Um, Yeah, he's he's talking about uh, set times of prayer. Let's say. But he's not, even though he's getting at that, I don't think he's excluding other times or kinds of prayer. Because, let's face it, uh, people who set apart times to pray um, in the day are probably going to be more willing to pray at different times during the day. You know, and, and it goes back to um, uh, I think I've, I've mentioned this this idea before, but there's there's a question I forget who it was now, but the, the question was. Uh, to the effect of, um, you know, may I, uh, may I eat while I pray? Let's say, <clears throat> and the answer is absolutely not. Right, but then the question is, well, can I pray while I eat? And the answer is, well, of course you can. So, there are clearly times that are to be set apart for praying, specifically for that purpose. But that does not exclude or, or preclude the, uh, the need or the, the uh, usefulness of praying you know, throughout the day, no matter what you're doing. Like we talked about a few moments ago, that... You feel like you're being compelled by the spirit. Yeah, you you really you know you for whatever reason. I mean, um, you know, I I can think of an example 
recent example when I was just uh, sort of standing somewhere, uh, gazing off, and then I had this overwhelming sense that I should be praying, and I did, and you know, uh, there was. It turned out that it was, it was specific. Uh, and it turned out, you know, 15 minutes later, I realized why. <clears throat> All right, 13th evil that brings in verse and beauty of prayer, 204. This is that this comes when people lean more to a gift of prayer than to Jesus present influences and supplies. This is always a problem. You know, there are people who are particularly gifted in prayer. And like any gift, uh, there is always a danger that you uh, allow yourself to become fixated on the gift rather than the gift giver. And that's that that's going to be a deadening, um, dampening and deadening effect. So, knowing who we are and what we are, these things are all, uh, I think they should all be so many spurs. But Brown in the next chapter is actually going to go over a number of encouragements and add to them. So chapter 10 we'll be looking at a series of encouragements that will be next.